welcome to Spine and Body Podcast. This podcast's stated goals are to change how the world treats musculoskeletal pain, to create experts in the treatment of neck, back, and shoulder pain, and to advance the world's understanding of this pain, to inspire researchers, thinkers, and innovators, to empower patients and embolden caretakers. Follow us on this journey and let's learn and grow together. This podcast is brought to you by the Body Guitar Clinic because your body is a finely tuned instrument. Like all finely tuned instruments, it must be properly cared for in order to play the beautiful music it was intended to play. Care for your body and use it correctly, and it will play music that is unique to you, your life song. This is Sean Wheeler, MD, and let's get your body in tune. Welcome back to Spine and Body Podcast. This is Dr. Sean Wheeler, and this is episode number five, and this is the uh, SI joint. Today's going to be a, a little bit of a, a little bit of a weird podcast, and the fact that I am speaking more to practitioners than I am to patients. However, I think that there's a lot to learn from each. When I start talking about the SI joint, we're getting really into depth as far as trying to make diagnosis and trying to understand the the lumbar spine. And, and the lumbar spine is an, an amazing, glorious mix of muscles and motion and stability, and it becomes exceedingly complicated and beautiful, awe-inducing almost. And an algorithm just does not work. And as we start getting into this, you're going to start seeing the art of, of the whole of the whole mechanics and that understanding of the whole mechanics. And when it comes to abdominal pain, like for example, you get appendicitis that doesn't cause ovary, ovary issues or gallbladder issues or anything else. But with the back, one thing becomes another and symptoms from one area can look like symptoms from another and it just becomes increasingly complicated. And we need this discussion today before we start getting into uh, disc bulges and, and how that happens. So realize that there, there may be a few rants today. There's a lot of explaining and some of it can't, some of it can't be done by spoken word. Some of it has to be done maybe more thoroughly. Uh, more completely as we go through time, but I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try to explain this today, and some of it could be over your head, and some of it not. I just need feedback, right? So let's 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 get started and see what we get. So the SI joint, which is called the sacroiliac joint, is is basically part of your pelvis. There's there's two SI joints in in the back. So so let's explain that this SI meaning sacroiliac sacrum is is the first bone that we're going to talk about. So your spinal canal, right, it goes all the way up and down the spine. It is your backbone. Um, at the base of it is the sacrum. So at the very top in your neck is uh, seven cervical vertebrae. And then through your chest is 12 thoracic vertebrae. And then the lumbar spine, uh, which is actually the, the low back, you have five or six lumbar vertebrae. And I say six only because some people actually do have six. And then the sacrum is the base of this. And it is a triangular 3D fusion of five bones. And, and it really, believe it or not, it doesn't completely fuse until somewhere between 18 and 30 years old. But 
It's this fusion of five bones called the sacrum. And then under that, we have something called a coccyx, which is C-O-C-C-Y-X, coccyx. And it is a fusion of, or partial fusion of three to five. So earlier in one of the other podcasts, I said that the sacrum was 10 fused uh, segments. and, And that's kind of what I mean, that and the coccyx together. And the coccyx is, well, in other animals, it's a tail. And in us, it's, you know, used to be a tail or part of a tail or... I'm sure there's a joke there somewhere. Anyway, so the SI joint is reasonably immobile. I mean, it allows motion uh, as it connects with the ilium. All right, so that's where I, that's where I, okay, so we've got the sacrum and then it connects with the ilium in a semi-mobile uh, way. Uh, I tell people it's a lot like the the legs on a table, you know, that they, they actually are supposed to flex and move. They're just, you know, built to be reasonably immobile. So the ilium is the bone that 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 comes around the side. Now, if you look in an anatomy book, that it's gonna it's gonna give you all different names for this one bone, depending on which part of of the pelvis it's in. But I will tell you that from for our purposes, the ilium is the entire bone going around the outsides of the pelvis where your hip attaches, and then and together it in the front it attaches at a joint called a symphysis pubis. Now, this whole pelvis is supposed to move as one. However, there's movement. Within that, the front the front moves, the symphysis pubis moves, and then the SI joint moves, but it doesn't move a lot. Inside of that, we have the pelvic floor. The pelvic floor has, you know, reproductive organs. It has organs of elimination, um, meaning bowel and bladder. It helps us with breathing. It's got several nerves that pass through there. Motion through this area is different than the motion that I'm going to describe, but it's a complex group of muscles. Uh, that attach through this area, as do all the muscles of the of the upper leg and you know buttocks. So the motion of the pelvis, usually with walking and running, is that let's say for example you're gonna you're gonna swing your right leg when walking. So your left leg is on the ground, your right leg is gonna swing. What happens is the muscles of your butt, the glute muscles, pull that side of the hip up to create room for swing. Right, so then it switches, and 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 as it swings forward, it brings that right hip forward. The left hip is left behind. The, then the left hip rises. The left leg swings. That's brought forward, and we sway back and forth with hip rising and swaying forward. Hip rise, sway forward. Opposite of that, our shoulders are going the opposite way as the arm swings, and combined together, we create this kinetic energy where. One is moving one way, the other one's moving the other, and the amount of energy it takes to propel yourself forward is less than one would expect. It's really a symphony of motion that creates efficiency, and it's, it's truly amazing. Now, sometimes this all goes astray, and that that joint between the sacrum and the ilium gets irritated. Now, there's some ways in which the, the joint can get irritated all by itself, right? If, you, if you're out walking your dog and the dog pulls and you get yanked, sometimes it'll pull that SI joint off. Or you step in a hole. Um, I bring up one leg longer than the other, but that's kind of a long, it happens over a long term and it, and it has more to do with, uh, you know, kind of long-term issues. Sometimes people get in a car accident and they'll hit their knee on the dashboard and it'll drive that, that whole thigh back the femur back and dislodge the SI joint slightly, and that'll cause pain. A lot of times, you know, we'll see people who have had a lumbar fusion 
and now their low back doesn't move the same way and they get uh, SI joint pain. And usually what we tell people is, is that if you had a fusion a year ago, within that first year after getting your fusion, you have a 2% chance of getting SI pain. If it's been two years, 4%, right? It's 2% a year. So if it's been 10 years since your lumbar fusion, you have a 20% chance of having SI pain. It's been 50 years, you're supposed to have a 100% chance you're going to have SI pain, which, you know, doesn't work out that way. But we give people, you know, kind of this uh, guidelines after lumbar fusion. But what usually causes SI pain is facet pain. Okay. Now we talked about facet pain last time. We talked about how these are the joints between vertebrae where it can get irritated. Now, if it gets irritated, so imagine I've irritated my lowest facet just above the sacrum. I want to swing my right leg. My right hip comes up, compresses that facet joint together, and it hurts. So what do I do? Well, I got to find a way to swing my leg so that it doesn't hurt. And a lot of times what happens is people will start walking right. I mean, they start walking normally, but then that joint starts to hurt and then they change. So how can I accomplish this? I can't raise my hip. So what I do, so I want my right leg to swing. I lean into my left leg, which drops my pelvis on the left side, thereby rising or raising the right hip. I lean with my upper body into that left side and my right leg swings. And then I switch. And what it looks like is it looks like I'm waddling, not the 700 pound morbidly obese waddle, but the, um, you know, kind of a shuffle. It, and it's really, some people don't even notice. Matter of fact, most people don't know when they went from hip rising to opposite hip dropping. So most people can't even tell. They have a, and oftentimes I'll bring it up with patients and I'll have a family member go, oh yeah, I can tell when you're waddling. And the person will look at them like, really? So it's, it's kind of one of those deals where people kind of change. Now here's what happens. Now, instead of the pelvis all moving as one swaying forward with each one, now we've got this shift back and forth. And a couple of things happen. People can get iliotibial band or IT band irritation, their gluteus bursus starts to hurt, their SI joint starts to hurt, right? And it's one of those deals where when we start trying to make a diagnosis of SI pain, we start asking this question. You know, we start saying, do you notice if you, you know, waddle? Did you, did you step in a hole? Did you, is one leg longer than the other? I may not ask that question. I may look for it, right? Was there a car accident? You know, because as we're trying to figure this out, it becomes this story of SI, right? So as we're trying to make a diagnosis, this is part of the history. We're trying to figure these things out. When you start trying to figure out something as complex as SI pain, there is not a single history point that tells you. There is not a physical exam point that tells you. There's not, there's not anything that, that absolutely confirms it. So as I'm going through these things, do remember that it's not one of those things where you can go, oh, this is it every time. It doesn't work that way. So this is where we talk about that art of trying to make this diagnosis. This is how it works with the SI joint. Just realize that. So we talk about the history, what happened, how long has it been hurting, did something change, things like that. So then we start doing a physical exam, you know, and there's and there's a lot of parts to this physical exam. But what I'll tell you is, is that I'm looking for facet pain first, right? I'm pushing around on the facet joints. I'm trying to figure out whether that hurts. Next, I'm pushing around on the SI joint. And actually before that, you know, we do all these tests looking for nerve pain, 
uh, straight leg raise, looking for for nerve stretch. Uh, there's a test where we where we um, it's called a Patrick's test or a Faber test, which is uh, flexion, abduction, external rotation. We we basically take the the ankle of one foot and put it on the knee of the other of the other leg. So one leg we take the foot and we put the it on the knee of the other uh, across the front, and then push that foot down. A lot like you're doing one-sided Indian style, except the person's laying down. And that's a test where we're putting pressure across the SI joint. It's helpful. Uh, there's a series of other tests, all of which uh, through research have been proven to not give us the results that we think. Things like a um, Gaislin's test, uh, Finger Fortin test, SI compression, thigh thrust, all these different things. We try to rule out the hip as a cause because that's really important. Uh, but basically, does the SI hurt? And, th and that's basically what we're asking as we go through this. So then we get to what's the pain story. So at this point, I sit down and I think to myself on, on when I'm doing the exam, and this is often, I don't mean it's every time, but I think to myself, okay, it sure looks like, it sure looks like SI. Otherwise, I wouldn't bring up this pain story and, and facet, you know, so, but I'm just going to describe SI today. So at this point, I say, man, you know, their history sounds like it. Their exam sounds like SI, but I'm to a vital point now where I have to ask them whether they have these essential SI pain story symptoms. And it is really important because if I say these things and the, and the person goes, yeah, I don't know, you know, does that mean, no, I don't have those symptoms or does that mean, no, I'm a, I'm a normal red-blooded person and I try not to think about my pain? So it's really, it's really kind of one of those deals where this is, this is our make and break point because they're so essential. And even then, even as essential as they are, the person may not even know whether they have it. And they may come back a week later and go, you know, all those things you said, I do have that. So here's the essential parts of SI joint. So I, what I tell, I tell people, I say, SI joint, it hurts if you sit too long. You feel like standing. If you stand too long, I feel like sitting, walk too long, lay down too long. Crossing your legs to tie your shoes sometimes hurts. Sometimes it actually feels better. Holding something heavy in one arm hurts. You find yourself standing on one leg, stand on the other. Those are the ones where I stop and I look at them and I say, is that you? And then they'll start talking about something and I'll say, no, wait, wait, wait. I want to come back to these seven things. Does it hurt if you sit too long, stand too long, walk too long, lay down too long, crossing your leg, tie your shoes, holding something heavy in one arm? Do you find yourself standing on one leg and stand on the other? Right? I think I just mumbled my way through that whole thing. But I, I stop them and I say, I need to know. Right? And and some and sometimes they don't they don't know. And I say, well, we need to come back to this. And sometimes they're like, no, that's me. Or that's not me. And if it's not them, I'm I'm doing more of an exam. I'm pulling out their MRI. I'm I'm trying to figure out where where I got this wrong and what else I need to look for. If they're saying that is me. Then I go on to these non-essentials, right? So the non-essentials are things like, you know, SI joint sometimes refers pain to the back of the knee, right? Uh, sometimes people with SI pain will say, I have, to, I have to sit up in bed to roll over. And those are two of the main ones. You know, then the third one is, is that sometimes people will get piriformis muscle spasm and pain all the way to their calf or even in some cases all the way to their foot. So what is piriformis syndrome? So there is a muscle that stretches. So there's several muscles in the pelvis that are called external rotators, uh, glomeli, superior and inferior uh, oblique, or ob, excuse me, obturator. And then there's this piriformis. 
And and piriformis, the, the only difference is, is that the muscle, excuse me, the sciatic nerve goes right under it in almost all cases. I mean, there's some rare cases where it goes through the muscle. And then there's even some cases where the, where the uh, sciatic nerve actually splits and half of it goes around and half of it doesn't. But I will tell you that those I used I used to take this big interest in those, and now what I tell you is is that it's so incredibly rare that I don't even pay attention to that anymore. My question is, why is the piriformis and spasm, or you know, does do, are people getting these symptoms, and is it related to the SI joint? So, what happens is the piriformis stretches from your hip to the undersurface of your SI joint, and there is only three cases where this muscle will spasm that I know of. Three cases uh, that this will spasm. One is your hip hurts, two is your SI joint hurts, and three is that nerve is so irritated that as it goes under the muscle, I touch that muscle and it hurts. Okay? Doesn't help us that much. However, you will see people, and the reason why I say it doesn't help us that much is because we're still trying to differentiate it from other things, and I've just included three major causes of pain, and it didn't help our algorithm, right, if we're doing an algorithm. If we're taking this all together, all these different in bits of information and trying to decipher something out, it can help. And here's the thing that makes it even harder. Uh, this is for more cl clinicians than anybody. Is I see people every so often who they've got foot drop because of because of piriformis spasm. Next thing is is if you get an MR, if you get an, excuse me, if you get an EMG, the EMG is going to be negative because there has to be continuous compression on a nerve for 14 days before an EMG is positive. That's not for you non-clinicians. I'm just, I'm just saying that. Okay, so here we are uh, with piriformis pain as a non-essential. So then how do we make this diagnosis? When I start, I mean, basically what I've just done is I've taken a, a ton of information and, and, put it, and put it out there as far as this, but I can tell you that anybody who's listening who's tried to make these diagnoses before, they say, okay, well, how do you make that differentiation from a, from a disc bulge? Well, we'll get there, right? All of these have some value and must be taken together. So we say, okay, we think that this is SI joint and we're going to try to treat this. Um, I will tell you that when I, when I put medication into the SI joint, it should hurt. Medication being injected into the SI joint should cause pain. This is one of those where I think that that's about 90% of the time, but it's not 100 right? Everything with this SI joint is, is not 100. So I put medication in the SI joint and the person goes, oh boy, that, that feels like a, as one physician told me one time, he said, it feels like a baseball is exploding in my pelvis. Okay. Right. Tells me that I'm putting something in there that into a place that hurts. Then afterwards it's numb. That's really helpful to me, right? Really no, helpful to me. The steroid that I usually put in then causes pain relief for a little while, and we can actually get to physical therapy and try to improve the lumbar stability, the pain through the SI joint, the way the hip is moving, the way the pelvis is moving, all these different things, all the things that we've talked about before. Now, when we do this, do realize that there's an awful lot of times that we have to treat the SI and the facet together because... One of the reasons the SI hurts is because the facet hurts, right? So the facet hurts. I, I, can't, I can't swing my pelvis the same way. Not only that, but my back is less, I have less stability and strength through the spine than I did before. I have to treat the facet or the weakness in the back at the same time. And that's really difficult if I don't get to treat them at the same time. And one of the reasons why I don't get to treat them at the same time is because 
you have insurance companies saying, you have to follow our algorithm, which is treat one thing at a time. So before we go back and talk about, about the algorithm, let's talk about what most musculoskeletal doctors do. So uh, orthopedic surgeons, sports medicine doctors, normally what they'll do is they'll look at a joint, a joint which is not as complicated as the low back, and they will do a practiced, experienced physical exam that has been developed over generations. They will take a history which is detailed and through experience has led them to the questions that they ask. Uh, if they don't find what they want on the exam, they ask more questions, they do more of an exam. And then when they finally do an injection, they do an injection that is both diagnostic and therapeutic because they have narrowed it down to the point where this is probably it. Otherwise, I wouldn't give you an injection. But if you're not numb, then then I want to know, and I can move on to the other part of decision-making and, and this confirmation injection. Or if it is, if it did work, I want that steroid to work. I don't want to have to put you through another injection. And this is this is what they've done for a long time. Pain management, and I've described this in the History of Epidurals podcast, and I also described it a little bit in the Facet Injection podcast, started as a profession really about the same time that the MRI came out. There had been people doing epidurals for 60 years uh, for babies and then eventually for back pain, started adding facet injections, joint injections, SI joint injections, things like this, right around the same time that the MRI came out. And there was this decision at some point where they were either going to become experts in understanding the back, become experts at physical exam, at history of all of this to the low back, or they were just going to assume that the MRI was going to tell them everything and they really just needed to make an algorithm. And that's what they did. They developed an algorithm. Now, the algorithm has changed because... Initially, what they were doing was steroid injections, or some people were doing steroid injections. And, and then they came forward and said, well, you know, the steroid irritates the joint. We talked about this before uh, in the fact that it breaks down cartilage, et cetera, which even though other musculoskeletal doctors have been doing it for generations, this was their argument. And then steroid injections only lasted for two to three months. And when you don't do any rehab, that's not very long, while radiofrequency ablation could last for longer. So they basically said, they started changing the algorithm where there's no steroid injections. We just do, we just numb up the nerve that goes to the joint to prove that that's it. And you can't treat more than one thing at a time because we need these diagnostic injections to make the, to make the diagnosis for us. So when you go back, there's a, a scientific and health journalist named Gary Taubes who, who, uh, who talks about bad science, and he talks about it in the, in the um, diet industry. He actually did uh, before. He actually did some other things before that, and he's got a book that I will link in the show notes. And I, I heard him talk about when physicists come up with a theory, it's other people, o- other people that actually test it. The person who comes up with the theory isn't necessarily supposed to test it because there's too much testing bias. And what has happened is is that we have the same people create the theory that continually test it in a way that only fits their narrative, right? And okay, so what do I mean by that? So 
somewhere along the line, there's been studies done which show that the physical exam for back pain is unreliable, okay? What they should have done at that point is instead say, why? Instead, because the narrative was already, we don't do physical exam, why would we get, it became, why would we get better at physical exam? The studies have shown it doesn't work. No other part of medicine has ever declared that the physical exam doesn't work and we should just forget about it and start doing diagnostic injections. That's where we are. No other, no other branch of medicine has ever said our results are so terrible that instead of looking for other possible uh, rationales or theories, we're going to instead start doing diagnostic injections without a diagnosis ahead of time with an algorithm. And it just so happens that this branch of medicine is the most difficult musculoskeletal problem we have. So what has happened? The results have been poor. If you look at the studies, been, they've been poor. Like I say, it is now the most, it is the most, the, it is the leading cause of disability worldwide. If you treat one joint at a time, there better only be one joint that hurts. Because if there's two, well, if there's two, they better not overlap. If there's more than that, this algorithm goes to crap. And that's exactly what has happened. I've just spent the last 20-something minutes explaining to you how things overlap. So you've created, by doing one at a time, you've created more You've, you've created more problems than we started with. And, and as a person who's taken a Hippocratic Oath, I feel this obligation to treat back pain better than the way it's being treated. And I'm having insurance companies tell me, no, no, you have, the standard of care is the algorithm. And I say, that is impossible. As a musculoskeletal doc doctor who treats low back pain and who invests in the physical exam and the history the way I have and, have made, and has made a career of trying to figure these things out and try to put the, create this art of medicine where I can figure out the low back, and I come back and I say, listen, here's the facets that hurt. Here's the SI joint that hurts. Here's the glute bursa or the hip bursa or the IT band or whatever it is that hurts. And I have to get pain relief to these areas and so that I can get them to therapy. And I have someone on the other line saying, therapy? You were supposed to do therapy before we ever do any shots. Oh, and you can only do one at a time because how are we going to know what the cause of the pain is? It's insulting. And that's, <laughs> I told you there'd be a rant on here somewhere. I just, I hope for more. I hope for more for my patients. I hope for more for this profession. Okay, rant over. Let, let's let's move on. I, I, if I were to treat your facet and SI joints and you were to be better, we then would, we'd, we would then, uh, what we would hope is for two to three months of pain relief. In those two to three months, what we would hope to then achieve is an improvement in stability around the spine, an improvement in the way the pelvis moves, um, a, an improvement in mobility, an improvement in stability. We'd want you to get quit breath holding, you know, muscle sequence firing. We'd want all these things through physical therapy in these two to three months that you aren't hurting. You can't do the injection and then try to get back to normal activities, right? We have to get all this strength back. 
Um, and it won't just naturally happen, except in one case, which we will get to here in a second. Next, if, if a person were to say, I only get two to, three, two to three weeks of pain relief, we would do it again. And then what we think to ourselves is, is maybe it's not quite uninflamed enough. Maybe if we retreat it again, and we would do the same with it if this was an elbow or a neck or, or excuse me, an elbow or a shoulder or a knee, we would say, you know what, let's see if we can decrease the inflammation a little bit further. So we would do this again. If this time we get two to three months of pain relief with physical therapy, this is our treatment. We're, we're trying to get to physical therapy. If on the other hand, we uh, get only two to three weeks again, I can tell you normally then what we do is we move on to radiofrequency ablation. And what we like to do is we like to do radiofrequency ablation of both the facets and SI at the same time. And until a few months ago, we could. A few months ago, it was decided you can't treat more, more than one place at a time with radiofrequency ablation. Uh, insurance is not paying for it. Not only is insurance not paying for it. If insurance doesn't want to pay for it, that's one thing. We we can write some things off. Medicare has decided they're not paying for it. And when Medicare decides they're not paying for something, you can't write anything off. Because Medicare, the, the rationale is, is that if I write anything off, then I've defrauded Medicare from all the people that I charged them for. So there's a real issue when Medicare starts saying it. But there's a reason why people do this. Okay, so so when we do radiofrequency ablation of the facet and SI joint, what we're hoping for is six months to two years of pain relief. Six months to two years of pain relief. Now, we've already talked about the fact that it affects the facet in a, in a, in a non-optimal way and the fact that it shuts down the multifidus. You can listen to the last podcast about that. But the other thing that it does is it does not take away inflammation in the joint. It just tells the, it tells the brain that there's, that it does, that there's no pain, right? You've burnt nerves. At no other joint would we burn nerves. This is not a, this is not, this should not be the, the first and, and, um, only, only treatment. If we can get away with putting steroid and numbing medication in there and person can get two to three months of pain relief, we can get through therapy. If on, if on the other hand, it takes radiofrequency ablation, we've just created six months to two years of pain relief, but it's still not better. We have to get things moving better. I think I've explained this ad nauseum. Now, one of the reasons why uh, we can't do this anymore also is, is that insurance companies have started nitpicking or, or not nitpicking. Insurance companies have started cherry picking studies as far as trying to make it so that um, certain things are approved, certain things, they give rationale why they've approved certain things and why they haven't. And most insurance companies are now saying SI, radiofrequency ablation of the SI joint is experimental or uh, not supported in the evidence. So what I did is I went back and I, and I looked at one of the insurance company's rationales and I'm going to use um, United. So if any of you are with United, just realize I'm only picking on you uh, because it's you guys, you guys sent me your studies. So, or at least you sent me your list of studies. And there were four, right? And the first one was this Hayes Payer Solutions, where they did a meta-analysis of um, of different SI treatments, uh, including radiofrequency ablation. And because I'm not a subscriber to Hayes Payer Solutions, I can't tell you exactly which studies they went through. I didn't get to look at very much, but what I can tell you is, is that they said the evidence is poor and they said that they went through a lot of studies. So I, that's all I can tell you. And, and that one's called radiofrequency ablation for sacroiliac joint denervation 
in chronic low back pain. And that that's all I can say about that one. Okay, so the next one is by Hansen, and it's called a systematic evaluation of therapeutic effectiveness of sacroiliac joint interventions. And what they said, they did uh, 56 studies, and their inclusion criteria was six months of pain relief, um, so at least six months of pain relief. So they took 56 studies, and only 11 met their criteria. Now, realize six months takes out a lot of things, right? It's it's kind of one of those deals where if I just told you when I give steroid shot injections, I only get two to three months of pain relief and that's enough. And then you turn right around and you say, uh, we're only including any study that that does six, that gives us six months of pain relief. You've basically already said that every injection for the SI joint is out, except for radiofrequency ablation. And in this study, they said SI joints, you know, not terrible for, for radiofrequency ablation. Everything else is terrible, right? So we got one study that says uh, doesn't work. We got one study that says uh, it's not terrible. And then there's two more, a role of radiofrequency ablation for sacroiliac joint pain, a meta-analysis by Aiden et al. And realize anytime I say et al., that, that just means there's a whole bunch of other authors. For those of you who are going to write a, a, an article, I, I, would, I would make sure your name's first because for otherwise you're going to be et al. Uh, this one says it looks like radiofrequency ablation works, but need more need more studies. And then and then the last one is Chen et al. and and they say basically the same thing. So that one's radiofrequency neurotomy in chronic lumbar and sacroiliac joint pain, a meta analysis. And they say it looks like it works, but needs more research. So those are the four studies that they put forward, and they say basically we're not going to approve it. We found four studies that, that kind of give us, you know, say, instead of saying this works, they found four studies that either say it don't, it doesn't, or we can't tell. And then the one that says they, they put criteria in there for six months, which I think is, you know, crap, but you know, we're getting to that point where insurance companies are able to pick and choose which studies they're going to use to, to approve something or not. And no one, no one pushes back. And this is a little bit of my pushback. So, one of the reasons, okay, so so there are two reasons why it appears like radiofrequency ablation doesn't work, okay? And I'm going to go through this really quick. I didn't really want to go past 30 minutes, but here we are. So there's two reasons why it doesn't, it doesn't appear like it work, works. If you treat SI joint only and the facet joint hurts, your results from SI joint radiofrequency ablation or even injection is going to be poor. You're going to come back and you're going to go, wow, there's so few people that got better compared to what we thought, you know, when we started this algorithm, that the results ended up worse than we thought. A second thing in, and that second thing in is, and this is, this one's really important to me because I see it all the time. If I put medication in the facet and SI joints, you feel a little better in that joint and good enough to get through physical therapy. When I do radiofrequency ablation of the facet and SI joints, your brain thinks that it's better. And this is the one instance that I have found where a person will start moving better immediately. So immediately, the hip starts to rise on the, on the side of your leg is swinging, and immediately the whole pelvis starts to move better. The problem is that your butt muscles, your glute muscle is not ready for that kind of motion. 
So we'll oftentimes see thir- uh, 18 to 36 hours later, person will say, man, my, I, I just start hurting. You know, I was, I was thir- 18 to 36 hours later, I went for a walk in the mall. And for you young people before COVID, people used to just go to the mall and walk. Now, now, of course, you know, we don't, do, we don't do that anymore, but people would go to, I would go to the wall and mall, mall and walk too. And, and I'm not that old. So, you know, I mean, people would just go around and walk around the mall and this would happen. People, I would do radio frequency ablation of the facets and SI joints. They would feel great. 36 hours later, uh, they, they'd gone for a walk in the mall and they'd be like, all my pain is back. Now, I can tell you that our butts are not made to be able to differentiate glute muscle pain from SI pain from facet pain. I mean, that's an area of, of about three inches. If I, if I were to take a bunch of a bunch of 18-inch high wooden letters and, and have you sit on them one at a time, your, your butt's not going to be able to tell the difference between one wooden letter and the other. I mean, if it's an O and you sit down in it, maybe. Um, but for the most part, you're not going to make it through the letters. Um you know, I mean, maybe maybe we could have a maybe we could have a competition. The Olympics just ended. Maybe we could create a whole new Olympic event on um, on on wooden letters and and can you pick it out from uh, with your butt? But anyway, the butt can't tell the difference between SI and and glute muscle. And uh, and I oftentimes I'll lay people I'll bring out a, a a pelvis or a spine model. And I'll put my finger on the ilium where the, the concavity of the ilium is where the glute muscle attaches. And I will push on their sake or on their ilium and on the on the model. And I'll push all along there and they'll be like, yep, yep, that's where I hurt, that's where I hurt, that's where I hurt. And I go, yeah, you know, your butt muscle wasn't ready for this improved walking. And then I have to send them back to physical therapy and I say, you know, do modalities to the butt muscle, to the glute muscle, and also get that glute muscle working well enough so it can put up with this new walking. That rarely happens when I give them a steroid shot, but it happens all the time when I do radiofrequency ablation. And this complicates everything. So then here comes the people who actually have a disc bulge. And I go through all the history, the physical, everything. And they've got piriformis pain, and they've got butt pain, and they've got all this other stuff, and then they've got a disc bulge that matches. And I go through their exam, and sometimes that nerve pain is so bad that I'm like, look, this is this is nerve pain. I've been through this before. I think that this is disc bulge. You know, you're we're gonna treat your disc bulge and see what you got. But sometimes what happens is that I'm looking at it and I'm going, you know, I can't really tell. And I will tell you that in those cases, we treat facet and SI. And the reason why we treat facet and SI is because I'll put my medication in the facet and SI joint, and the person will say, that's not my pain, or that is my pain. They don't do that with epidural. I put medication into the epidural space and I wait four days, well, two to two to 10 days, really. An epidural takes two to 10 days to work and there's no diagnostic part of it at all. However, there's a bunch of steroids and if, and if two to 10 days later they feel better, I don't know whether I've treated the facet and SI or whether the epidural actually worked. I don't know. I put medication into the facet and SI joint and it's numb for four hours or it hurt when I was putting it in also, you know, I mean, it's just kind of one of those things. So people will come back and they will say for the first four hours, that was my pain. Now back pain's complicated. And I will tell you that there are people that have all of it. They've got disc bulge, they've got facet pain, they've got SI pain, they've got all of it. But that's my job as a clinician to have gone through all the stuff I just went through and say, 
Here's what I think. I'm piecing this together. It's a musculoskeletal complex puzzle wrapped in, wrapped in a riddle and an enigma, all this other stuff, right? It's just one of those deals where there's so much going on that I have to figure this out. And if I start with an epidural and I don't know whether it's facet and SI, I'm really not doing anybody any service, right? And people end up having low back pain, excuse me, low back surgery when it was truly facet and SI pain. And the whole thing turns into a disaster. And I hope what I'm accomplishing with this whole, again, rant is making you understand that this is hard, right? And these questions are important. And figuring this out is what a physician or a practitioner or even a patient has to do. And to just go in and say, we're going to do this algorithm is, is a little bit of a disaster. And I, and, I, and I know that I'm speaking in the negative like I said I didn't want to, but we got to change everything. We've really got to change the way the back, back pain is approached, how it's researched, how, how it's treated. We have to look at these things critically because what I just described is not being done in very many places. And as I do it, I'm getting pushback from other physicians. I'm getting pushback from insurance companies like crazy. My patients are getting charged extra at the surgery center. And yet that keep, they keep getting better, right? I, I have a, I have lower narcotic rates than anyone that I know. I have lower surgical rates than anyone I know. And my patients keep coming back and saying, I'm getting better. So either this is cognitive dissidence and I need someone to push me in the right direction or everything needs to change. That's our show for today. It's 40 minutes. I apologize. Please put forward some, uh, some questions and comments for me because I am hoping that this is a game changer for an awful lot of people. And we haven't even gotten to lumbar discs and disc bulges and epidurals yet. I can't wait for next week. Thank you for listening. We greatly appreciate your download and taking the time to listen. Please go to whatever source you normally get your podcast from and subscribe. Also, visit bodyguitar.com for show notes and to learn about our clinic. Living longer is not near as important as living better. These episodes are meant to advance the goal of living better. One of the best and hardest ways to achieve this goal is to pray for your enemies and forgive those that hurt you. Life is about relationships. Build them. Until next time, body guitar practitioners, performers, and tuners, get your body in tune. This is Dr. Sean Wheeler on Spine and Body Podcast, and I will see you on the next episode. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare studies, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their health providers for any such condition.